Let's pray this morning. God, as always, we pray that you would be glorified and blessed and honored as we look at what you have to say to us in our lives. Lord, would you speak directly to our hearts? Uh, We pray that we wouldn't miss the message that you have for us. And God, uh, as always, I ask that you would fill me, this broken, sinful vessel who desperately needs your mercy. And God, that you would fill me and use me, not because of any talent or gift that I have that I bring to the table, but because of what you bring. And I pray that you'd be glorified and honored as you are working in the hearts of all of us to communicate your message today. And so I pray this all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, You know, here's the interesting thing. My wife, who is generally working in the junction with our, our children on Sunday mornings, but my wife has discovered that being a pastor's wife comes with certain occupational hazards. It's just kind of an occupational hazard for her. Namely, she gets mentioned in sermon illustrations a lot, right? I have discovered that being a pastor, there are certain occupational hazards that go with this. Namely, mentioning my wife in sermon illustrations a lot, right? You know, I've, I've learned while this practice uh, generally is real and authentic from me, but it generally leaves me with a foot in my mouth and pleading for forgiveness somewhere along the way. You know, let's face it. Um, I've said a lot of probably not so intelligent things from behind this you know, music stand here. And, uh, you know, there have been many times where I've seen other women in, in the chairs there go, ooh, like cringe, you know, ooh, you know, like, don't say that, Dave. They're rooting for me not to say it. Or sometimes I've seen women like, I, I'm going to come slap you for Clarissa, right? You know, I mean, there have just been a lot of times where I've accidentally said something that I didn't mean that way, but it paints her not in the best light. And I was thinking about that. Uh, this week as I was preparing and, and I was thinking through, you know, sort of the things that I've said. And I started to do a little research, started to look back. You know, I have all the sermons that I've compiled and, you know, just a, a quick search for her name reveals that her name appears a lot in my sermons. And so I, I started started to uh, calculate some of the maybe not so intelligent things that I've said. And uh, I thought you might appreciate hearing some of these. So I started in 2006, right? In 2006, I implied the following, sometimes not intentionally, sometimes unfortunately intentionally. I implied a bunch of things. First of all, I looked through, I found, I implied that for the first year of Nicholas's life, Clarissa stayed home and watched soap operas all day. You know, not the greatest thing for me to imply. I implied that year that uh, if you came over to our house, there's a good chance it would be totally messy, right? Trying to be authentic doesn't paint her in the best light. I implied that she uh, doesn't appreciate flowers I give her simply because they were free. I implied that she was a killjoy because uh, she banned the Simpsons from our house. Uh, I implied that she makes funny noise when she throws up. I told everyone about the time that she put dish soap in the dishwasher and flooded our apartment with suds of soap, right? I mean, that was just in 2006. And then I started looking at 2007. And I looked back and I left the impression that Clarissa hates the way I sneeze that her favorite sweatshirt was a gift from an ex-boyfriend, that I had a dream where 
Clarissa cooked a great Thanksgiving Day meal, implying that that must have been a dream if she cooked, right? (laughs) I imply that she's impatient with me, that when our kids were younger, she used to save all the poopy diapers for me when I came home, right? And I implied that she was oppressive because all she does is ask me for back rubs. Now, that's just in two years, all right? I couldn't even take any more. Hopefully, maybe I've learned a little bit more, like I I ran this illustration by her today (laughs) before I brought any of this up. But that's only two years. And I've seen a lot of people cringe over the years. I've seen Clarissa cringe a lot. But the bottom line is that in all of this, I found myself asking for mercy a lot. (laughs) You know, coming home and saying, oh, honey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Please. I've seen many, many times where I've had to beg. If any know, anyone knows something about needing mercy, it's me. I mean, I get this concept of mercy. I need it. You know, the definition of mercy, we could simply, and hopefully you've heard this before, but if we were to define what mercy is, mercy is, is by definition, not getting what I do deserve. And that's a great definition of mercy. Not getting what I do deserve. For instance... Uh, I've told some of you this story before. When I turned 16 years old, uh, about a month before I turned 16, I had I'd been spent, I spent like six months researching and figuring out what car I was going to get. And I bought it about a month before I turned 16. It just sat in the driveway, right? I got my car. Two days after I got my license, I was at lunch. And uh, I was going way too fast down this residential street. And apparently, you can't take residential street corners at 40 miles an hour in the rain. Because I ended up, two days after I got my license, totally wrecking my car, right? I mean, just sliding into this curb and messing up the underside of the car. And and I remember, this was in the day before cell phones, I I remember getting out of the car with all my friends who were like, oh, Dave, you're so dead, you know? They were just like, oh, Dave, you're dead, you know? And so I walked up to this house, and I knocked on the door, and I asked them if I could use their phone. And I remember calling my dad at work, just trembling, you know, knowing that I deserved completely to be yelled at, to be screamed at, to be grounded from my license for like a year, right? And I'll remember my dad, instead of screaming at me on the phone, he just started laughing. He said, I knew you'd get into a wreck, but only two days. (laughs) Now that's mercy, right? I didn't didn't get what I deserved. But you know, my dad that, that week was also graceful. He didn't give me what I did deserve. In fact, he gave me what I didn't deserve. He paid to have my car fixed. I didn't deserve that. See, mercy is not getting what I do deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. That's mercy and grace. Let's face it. When you and I look at our lives, we all need mercy. You need mercy. I need mercy. We all need mercy. If there was anyone in the Bible who knew something about needing mercy, it was the Apostle Paul. Paul knew what it was need, what it was to need mercy. Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Put that up there, Richard. Paul says this. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for this very reason, I was shown Mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. It's right out of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, who was Paul? 
Remember, Paul was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was trained, discipled, mentored in the school of, of, the, of the Pharisees. He was the up-and-coming star. He was dedicated to the letter of the law, and he was classically trained, an expert. He was the next up-and-coming to-do guy. I mean, he was the big prospect, the guy that was coming up. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And what did he do with that status? Paul took it upon himself to eradicate the world of Christians. And he killed them, and he had them killed, and he had them arrested, and he tortured. He was the number one enemy of the Christian faith in its early years. And what he deserved for this, Paul understood, what he deserved was death. But on that day, when he was traveling to Damascus to arrest and imprison and kill and torture Christians, on that day, he saw the light, literally. God shined upon him, and he understood that the Christ he had been persecuting was the Christ who desired to have mercy on him. And Paul not only received mercy, but he received grace. He became an apostle. And then he authored a good portion of this this scripture that we have, this Bible. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. Not only was he an enemy of Christ, he was an enemy of the entire church. He was redeemed. God had mercy upon him. If there was anyone who knew something about needing mercy, it was the Apostle Paul. And which of us here today, who here today doesn't need mercy? I mean, you know your own sinfulness. You know you need mercy. I know that I need mercy. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you know your own sinfulness. (laughs) Maybe not everyone knows that today, but you know enough. Maybe you don't know every sin you've ever committed. Maybe you can't think of everything, but you know enough to know that you desperately need mercy. You and I can relate to the Apostle Paul. Now, Today, you might be wondering why we're looking at 1 Timothy on the screen here, because aren't we in John? You know, wait a minute. We're in, we're in the Gospel of John, Dave. Why are you taking a sidetrack into 1 Timothy? Well, because I want to show that this, this concept of mercy today that we're discussing today is found in a broader picture than just in, in this one little section of John. This concept of mercy is laced throughout scriptures from Genesis to revelation god's mercy is woven everywhere you see the reason one of the reasons why we're looking at a little bit at first timothy before we dive back to john is because if you noticed in your bible there's a few problems with john chapter 8 the passage that we're looking at if you have the niv or the esv and maybe some other versions you'll see that there's this little note between verse 52 and 53 there's maybe a line drawn and then a note that the, that the translators of your Bible have put in there for you. And that little note says, The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 to 8.11. Well, what's that about? I bet once a year I get a call from someone who's reading through their Bible and comes across this. Or there's another one like it at the very end of the Gospel of Mark. And they go, Dave, what is this about? What do you mean that that's not part of the Bible? You know? Well, you have to understand that what that this is saying is that the earliest manuscripts that we've uncovered, this little section is, isn't in those manuscripts. You know, apparently somewhere along the way this was added. Well, well, how, well, Dave, how do you know this? 
You know, how do you know this was added to the scriptures? Well, there's this wonderful science of textual criticism that I believe has helped strengthen our faith and the reliability of the scriptures that we have. The science of textual criticism is basically a science where you compare different manuscripts. You compare them and see which one's older and which one's newer and which one's more accurate. Now, because remember, the Bible, we talk about God's word being the inspired word of God. But when we say that, we mean that it was inspired in the original autographs. And I've talked about this a lot, but, you know, this isn't an original copy, okay? You know, Paul didn't have a typewriter, (laughs) right? I mean, the writers of Scripture didn't have... This isn't an original copy, nor is yours. In fact, there's no museum today anywhere that holds the original copies of Scripture. So some would say, well, then what, what good is it talking about the inspired Word of God if we don't even have in the originals, if we don't even have it. Well, the, the problem is, is that when, when people copied scripture, remember, there was no photocopy machine, right? They couldn't just run to Kinko's and copy the letter that the apostles sent and send it out, right? Couldn't just copy the gospel of John and send it out. It was handwritten and hand copied. And it's kind of like um, if you grew up in, a, in an era of cassette tapes, you know, some of you remember cassette tapes, Now, if you're really old, if you remember eight tracks, but cassette tapes, right? You know, if you remember cassette tapes, when I was a kid, my buddies and I, one of them would record a song off the radio and say, Dave, here, take this song and you like it. So I'd take it home and I'd get out my little cassette tape recorder thingy with the two cassettes and I'd put his in and record it. And then I'd have that song off the radio. So first of all, it wasn't a great quality because it was recorded off the radio. Secondly, every time you copied a cassette tape, it got worse and worse and worse. You know, by the time it was given to the fifth buddy who recorded it, I mean, it was just hissing and static, and you could barely even hear the song that was on the tape. Every generation, every copy, more errors creeped in. And so that's what the science of textual criticism does. It says every time a manuscript was copied, the potential for little errors to creep in. So the general idea is if we can go back and find, as archaeologists uncover, older manuscripts... And this is an oversimplification of the process. But generally speaking, those older ones are going to be more accurate than newer ones. Now, does this lead you to a crisis of faith? I was talking to someone about this week and they said, what do you mean? What do you mean this story about the woman caught in the act of adultery isn't in the Bible? It's in my Bible. It's right there. How can I trust any of it if you say that that one's not in there? Well, the the reason that we can say that is because... Friends, we, I mean, we've gone back and you can see the manuscripts. You can see these manuscripts. Some of them, we have fractions of this gospel of John that were written just years. Like they might be first or second generation copies from the actual gospel of John. And what we've discovered is that very little has changed. I mean, you can see how God's Holy Spirit has superintended the whole process and how God has given us an accurate copy of scripture. And, you know, I can honestly say that this text we have today is accurate within 99.9%. And the, even the things that are in question are generally things like periods because <laughs> they didn't use them, right? Where does the sentence end or start or do two letters get flipped around? There's no issue of doctrine that's ever in question in this. So when we come to John chapter 8, we see that this wasn't probably in there. It was added. Now, you can also see just when you read the Gospel of John that this John 7:53 to 8:11 it doesn't really fit in the story. It's like John 7 and 8 want to be one chapter 
And this kind of got inserted. You could see it doesn't fit with the flow of what Jesus is doing in his discourse with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Uh, you can just see it's, it's got different grammar and different structure, and it just doesn't fit in there. And so you can see, so, so what do we do with this? I mean, why would I even talk about it today? Why is it in? Why did they leave that in there? Why didn't they just lop it out? Why did they put that note in there? Well, your Bible translators did it to avoid... <laughs> controversy, right? I mean, they're really going to tick some people off if they take this thing out of the Bible, right? And so they did it. They, they also left it in our Bibles because it's a good story. It's, it sounds like the kind of thing that Jesus would do. You know, I mean, Jesus was always doing this with the Pharisees. He was, they were trying to trap him and he was turning it on them. You know, and, and, and Jesus was showing that he really believed the law over what they believed. I mean, this kind of thing Jesus was constantly doing. And so it fits. And, you know, I really believe that this was a true account. That this event really did happen, that someone, maybe even John, wrote this account down. It was just a, a manuscript that had been passed around, and someone liked it so much that they tucked it in the margin. And then later on, a few manuscripts, someone liked it so much that they took it from the margin, and they put it right into the text. So, why is it still there? Well, it's still there because it's a, an account of Jesus, and I believe that it still speaks truth. It speaks truth to us today. And, as, and, and I have no problem preaching from this passage as long as we can show, like in 1 Timothy and in Ephesians and in other places, throughout Scripture, the concepts we're talking about are still biblical and true and right. And so today, I want to look at this text because the, even in just seeing how Jesus relates to this woman and the Pharisees, there's so much that we can learn about mercy and I pray today that God will use this text as sort of a living example for you and I of how mercy works itself out. You see, the truth of the matter is that it's not just enough to receive mercy. We need to learn to give mercy. It's not just enough to receive it. We need to let mercy transform us, and we need to learn to give it as well. So let's look at this, this passage in John 8. And let's look at the story of this woman who is caught in the act of adultery. Now, first of all, we need to set some context, right? So normally we look at the chapters around a, a, a account to take the context of it. But we don't have that luxury in this because it was lopped out of somewhere else. So the context doesn't really fit. So we have to look a little bit about what's, what's the writer of this little passage? What's he setting up for us? Well, he sets up for us in 53 that everyone went to his own home. And so there's Jesus, right? There's just Jesus. And he's in Jerusalem because it lets us know that he went to the Mount of Olives. And then it says, and at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts. You have to understand that the temple courts in Jerusalem, I mean, like this is, this is the end all be all of religious stuff for the Jews in that day. If you wanted to have a religious discussion you didn't go to your local seminary to do it. That, I mean, that was a good place. You could go to a synagogue in your town. But if you were in Jerusalem, this temple in the temple courts, that was the place. That was the place where the most prestigious teachers taught. That's where you could engage. And it was much more than just a spiritual place. It was a social place. It was sort of like the town hall or the, the city square of, of Jerusalem in, in many ways. It was a place where people interacted. You know, uh, today we... We don't think about this because, you know, we work like 100 hours a week and, and we go to the movies and, you know, and we hang out in people's houses when we're connecting with them. Uh, in, in Jesus' day, you know, if you're not working 100 hours and 
You know, you go to, into town and you want to hang out with people. You don't have TV and movies to watch and people are where it's at. And so this is the, the setting that Jesus is in. He's surrounded by people and they're hanging on his every word. And we know that Jesus had already caused, in, in, in all the Gospels we see this, Jesus had already caused incredible tension with the religious leaders in his day. I mean, they didn't like Jesus. They want an excuse to get rid of him. He challenged them. He annoyed them. They felt like they were defending God. And they wanted to kill him because they thought he was a blasphemer. And so what we understand is that, that these religious leaders at this point had, had been looking for ways to trap Jesus. Look at verse 3 of chapter 8. The teachers of the law, the teachers of the law brought in, it says, and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group. Okay, you guys, you have to understand that in Jesus' day, an ad- adultery was a serious crime. Today, uh, you know, adultery is devastating. It kills families, and I mean, it's just a horrible thing. Uh, the law of Moses was good and then it forbid adultery. But we don't really today understand what it's like to, to think, view adultery as a capital crime, right? We're not going to haul anyone off to the prison and hook them up to the lethal injection machine because they committed adultery. So it's not really a serious crime in our view. In Jesus' day, adultery was a very serious crime. And this woman that they bring to Jesus, they, they tell him that she was caught in the very act of adultery. I mean, look what it says. It says, this woman was a woman caught in adultery. I mean, she was caught in the act. This was a trap for Jesus, right? They were bringing this woman in. Look at verse 6. What does it say? It says, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. So here they bring in this woman, and they're ready to trap Jesus. Jesus had a choice when they threw this woman before him. His choice was twofold. One, the choice that they think he doesn't want to make is that he has to condone her to death and uphold the law. That's choice one. Uphold the law, condone her to death. And these accusers are fairly certain that Jesus doesn't want to do this. Or his second choice was to save her life and break the law of Moses. And these Pharisees are so hoping that he chooses option two. They don't really care if the woman dies. They really like to trap Jesus, you know? You just see them doing this with their fingers and doing the Mr. Smithers thing, you know? Sneaky evil plotting against, you know, they just really hope that he saves your life and breaks the law. What we're going to see here is that Jesus extends mercy in a way that upholds the law. I mean, Jesus is always doing this. Option one or two, Jesus. I take option three. I mean, he's always doing that. There are a lot of lessons in this story about mercy. And I want to examine these this morning so that we can sort of give a better handle, get a better handle on what mercy is and what that looks like in our lives. So first of all, I want you to understand four things that mercy understands today. I want you to see these four things that mercy understands right out of this this living illustration in John chapter 8. And the very first thing that mercy understands is that mercy understands that people aren't a means to an end. Mercy understands that people aren't a means to an end. 
They're just not. Look at the second half of verse 3 and 4. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in this woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. I mean, you see this caught in the act? Listen, we said the law of Moses takes adultery very seriously. And so they said, if a man or a woman is caught in the act of adultery, not only does it sort of ruin the marriage, but like we're going to take this person who's caught in the act and we're going to capital punishment with him. We took it very seriously. But now the, 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 the law under, also understood that, you know, listen, we don't necessarily just want any husband to be able to accuse his wife of adultery because, you know, we could have husbands that just don't like their wife anymore and they could just go, hey, by the way, she committed adultery. And, you know, they'll just kill her and then his problem's solved. And so they recognize, listen, we don't want to just have anybody accused. So here's the deal. If someone commits adultery, we, we have to have witnesses of this, all right? So we only not, not have to have one witness, but we have to have at least two witnesses, okay? And you, you can't just sit in there and, and say, okay, well, we saw them go in a house together, right? The, the law said that witnesses had to actually see the event. They actually had to witness the very act of adultery. So you could see this, you know, this thing going on. I mean, you can see how the Pharisees are just using this woman. They, they take these two witnesses and they hide them in the bedroom, right? You know, like behind the little thing, right? And they hide them and they set it up. And, and they probably, to get this to happen, they had to put this trap for this woman. And, and they, they had to have some guy entice her and sort of seduce her and bring her into the right place at the right moment so that they knew and they were repaired. They set a trap for the woman. They used her. They didn't care about this woman one bit. She was a means to an end. The interesting thing about Jesus, and one reason I love this story, is that Jesus doesn't use the woman. He doesn't. He loves her. You see, he understands that she's guilty. But Jesus wasn't going to use her to prove a point. You know, friends, today, you need to understand that mercy doesn't use people as a means to an end. But oh, how you and I love to use people as a means to an end. You say, really, Dave? When did I use someone as a means to an end? Well, I don't know about you, but last fall I was sitting in an airport, waiting to catch my flight home. I was tired. I was exhausted. I just wanted to come home. And I got to the airport, and of course my plane had been canceled. So I get the joy of going in the line, right? You all know this. You've been here to this place. The line, which is like halfway across the airport. It's like 100 miles long. And I'm sitting there. Now, I don't have a first-class ticket or priority status. So my line is really long. Then there's this one agent that's just sitting there doing nothing, waiting for the first-class passengers to come up, right? I'm like, you could help someone. But no, they're just sitting there. By the time I wait through this line, it was probably 75 or 100 people long. By the time I get up to the front, I'm waiting in line. I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm the next person that they're going to help. And uh, this person that was in priority seating comes down the line right next to me. He stands and his agent is taken up and busy 
So when the people in front of me finish, he gets to cut in front of me, right? So I'm extra ticked off, right? And he's got this big problem because uh, I don't know why, but he's got this huge problem. It takes forever. By the time I get up to that agent, I don't give a rip about her, right? I don't care what kind of day she's had. All I want her to do is give me my ticket, tell me when I'm going to get home. I don't care what kind of day she's had, right? I don't care, you know, what's going on in her life. She is a means to an end to me. We do this with people all the time. If you're in a position of authority at work, you use your employees as a means to an end. You do it all the time. The person on the other end of the telephone, maybe, when you're calling in for support, and, you know, you can barely understand the English they're saying, and you're pretty sure that they've never even stepped foot out of whatever, you know, country they're in, and you, you just are so angry and frustrated, you don't care a rip about them. Just give me what I want. Maybe you're the University of Southern California, and all you care about is not your players. All you care about is putting together a winning football program, right? Or maybe uh, your kids. You think, well, I don't use my kids. Well, I bet you use their friends. You know, you care about, well, I I don't want my kids hanging out with this kid because that kid's a bad influence on my kid when really in your heart of hearts you know i just don't want a harder life (laughs) or i I don't want to look bad that my kid's hanging out with that kid you know how about just general in general our separation from sinners i mean generally speaking we identify two or three sins that we really don't like and we can't tolerate and can't handle and we decide you know i am not going to associate with anyone like that well the reason we do it is because we're uncomfortable not because we care about the people. <laughs> We're using them. You know, in a real sense, we use people all the time. In a real sense, though, we use God too. Now, God in no sense needs mercy. There's no sense in which he needs our mercy. We need his mercy. He doesn't need ours. But we use God all the time. Think of Fred Phelps and those crazy kooks from Kansas. <laughs> Not to alliterate, that was funny. Um, but, you know, those, those guys down there who really just hate homosexuals, they just hate them. And so they're looking to use God's law as a, a reason for their hate. They're just using God. Try to use his mercy. We do this without the slightest thought of being actually being a disciple or a follower of Jesus. We just go, God, give me the mercy. I don't care about following you or doing anything you want me to do or living my life or sacrificing all or surrendering everything to you. No, I don't care about that at all. Just give me the mercy. I mean, you see, these Pharisees, they use God's law to their own ends. They use this woman, too. Mercy understands that people are not a means to an end. Mercy also understands that sin is a serious issue. Mercy understands that Sin is a serious issue. You know, the law was used, uh, the law of Moses was used for a lot of things. It was, a, it was a civil law, it was a spiritual law, it was a social law. There's a lot of things that the law was used for. But the law was also used for compassion. The law dictated that if you saw someone in, in sin, that you had an obligation to talk to them to confront them, to save them from their sin. That's compassion. These perverts in this story, they don't care about the law. 
They don't care about having compassion on this woman. They don't take sin seriously enough. When we don't take sin seriously enough, we don't really have compassion to help sinners. In, John, in Deuteronomy 17, verses 6 and 7, and this is a, a great explanation about what is going on here in this passage in John 8. In Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 7, you know, let me flip over there and read that for you real quick. Um, Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 7. Speaking of this testimony of two or three witnesses, the law says this. On a testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting him to death, and then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. And you see what it said? Okay, you bring two or three witnesses together, and then those who actually want to condemn the person to death, they have to be the first ones to pick up the stone and throw it. You know, if you look at, flip back to John for a second here, and if you look at what what Jesus was doing there in John chapter 6, look at what the text says. John, excuse me, John chapter 8, verse 6. The second half, it says, But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Okay, so they're setting this trap for him. They get Jesus all set up and ready, and they've got him just where they want him. He's in a public setting. He's a, he's a teacher. Everyone can hear what he's saying. They bring this woman in, humiliated, standing before him. And they set the trap for him. And, and they ask the question, what do we do with this woman? And I love how Jesus just kind of diffuses the whole situation, this tenseness. He bends down on the ground and he starts writing. And he scribbles something in the sand. Now, for millennia... <laughs> People have been wondering, what did Jesus write? I mean, what was he writing? I don't know. But I have a good hunch. I've often thought maybe it was the names of the, the women that all these men had slept with, where they had committed adultery. But I don't know. As I read this and I look at Deuteronomy 17, I think Jesus was writing the actual words of the law. I think Jesus was reminding them, let's find the witnesses. Where are they? Are they ready to condemn this woman? You see, what, what this story is about is it doesn't mean that we should never confront sin. And so many people would use this story and say, hey, you know what? We just need to never deal with sin. We'll just never confront anyone. We'll just have mercy on everyone. And in that way, we'll fulfill the law of Christ. But that's not what Jesus does here. He's not afraid to confront her sin. You see, if the Pharisees did anything, they didn't take sin seriously enough. But Jesus does. Those witnesses weren't even prepared to throw the first stone. In fact, it makes you wonder if there were really even any witnesses, doesn't it? But if they were, they weren't prepared to throw the first stone. Those accusers weren't prepared to look at their own hearts. Jesus said, okay, those accusers without sin, come forward, have at it, throw the first stone. You know, it's really, I mean, it's a fascinating concept. 
See, what the Pharisees in, in, in this time had done is they had sort of separated out of their life. They'd separated their religious life from their common life. They'd separated out and said, we can obey the letter of the law and religious things, but we don't have to allow the letter of that law to transform and actually affect us in our entire life. Uh, Bill Hull has a new book. What's the name of it, Denny? Christlike. Yeah, Bill, Bill Hull, he's got a new book. And if you know about our history at Waukee Community Church, Bill Hull is an author, and he had a profound effect on just this church from the beginning about our focus on discipleship and, and training up people and, and not filling our chairs with just a lot of people who want a good entertainment, but, you know, with trying to transform people into followers of Jesus Christ. And he had a big influence in, in the blossom for us and, and for uh, our values of grace, relationships, authenticity, action, transformation. I mean, he was just instrumental in our hearts. And so on this very concept of separating out our religious and our common life, Bill Holt in his book, Christlike, reminds us that, you know, we have these two lives, just like the Pharisees did. We have our religious life, which is the church, right? I mean, it's Sunday morning and, and we have our religious holidays. You know, at Christmas, you probably, you know, have celebrate the birth of Jesus, maybe, and, and Easter. And you might even go a step further and celebrate Lent. You might give up dessert for the month of Lent, which, you know, we might do that next year. That's a great idea. You know, you might give up, uh, you might pray at, at times and read your Bible. And you have this religious life where you go to life group. But then all, each of us also have a common life. And Bill reminds us that that's your work life and your rec softball league and your breakfast club and, you know, your home life and sports and TV and you name it, you know. We have sort of a religious life when we're with our religious people and a common life. Then listen to what he, he writes. It's a long quote, so hang in here with me, okay? He says, the real, uh, the real power to affect others is found in the transformation of our inner life. And in how it affects the common parts of our experience. You see, many times we think we've been transformed because our lives have been free from, you know, murder or theft and adultery. You know, how sad that we have accepted the exercise of our religious duty and the absence of public sin as our definition of transformation. I want to read that again because how sad we've accepted the Exercise of religious duties and the absence of sin as the definition of transformation. This is what happens when we find a level of our religious experience that will allow us to hold on to the core of our flesh in order to maintain control of our lives. This limited view leaves out the pursuit of God, the joys of surrender, the fullness of a heart so passionate for God that it directs and governs all our attitudes and decisions. When we, when we have the sincere intention to please God in all our actions, we allow him to dig down deep inside of us and get to the deepest reasons for what we do. This includes who we are in our common life, the real person we are, not just the public religious person that we are, that we project, And if we are sincerely intent on pleasing God, we will believe that pleasing him is what will make us the happiest. And that we are not missing anything when we abstain from sin and pursue pleasing God. The spiritual heart must believe this in order to govern and direct 
our lives. This is at the core of the development of a spiritual heart. I mean, do you see how this applies to the Pharisees? Jesus just exposes their motive. He exposes this difference between their religious life and their common life. He says, your religious life, Jesus, God, has never transformed your regular common life. So sometime in the last couple of years, my son Benjamin, you know, he's seven now. It was probably last year when he was six years old. He comes down. I just got him, I got him a Cubs jersey and, and you know, um, I'm you know, slowly warping all my kids to, to love the Cubs. And so, uh, you know, he comes out and he is so proud of his new Cubs jersey. He's running around, like, you know, strutting his stuff in his Cubs jersey, getting ready to go off to school. It's the dead of winter, right? And, you know, the Cubs jersey looks really nice on Benjamin. Here's the thing he failed to notice. He failed to notice that in the dead of winter, he had shorts on. He failed to notice that his socks were two different colors and he was wearing sandals with two different color socks. I mean, it was the goofiest thing you've ever seen in your life, you know? But he was so proud of the top half, right? That he didn't take time to think about the bottom half. I mean, that's what's going on with the Pharisees. They were so proud of the top half, what everyone could see, the religious stuff. They didn't take time to look that the top half never affected the bottom half. You know, for Benjamin, I, I need to get him a pair of Cubs pants to go with the Cubs top and Cubs socks and shoes. He'll be complete with the underwear. Jesus is the only one in this story that actually cares about this woman and actually cares about true motives. He not only cares about the woman in this story, he cares about the Pharisees that are accusing this woman. Romans 2 says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's perfectly manifested in Jesus. Jesus exposes their hearts here in the passage. He exposes it. And he says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he rode on the ground. And at this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time. They all fade away. The older first who, who knew better. They knew. Life experience had taught them. The older ones first, until only when Jesus was left there with the woman standing there. You see, Jesus understands that sin is a serious issue. And the God, the Holy Spirit, the law is all meant to transform and take our religious life and transform our common life. Sin is a serious issue. There's a third thing that mercy understands. Mercy understands that people are equal. You see, these women were seen in back in Jesus' day as not important as men. Women were seen in Jesus' day as temptresses. The sexual sin was always in Jesus' day. It was always the woman's fault. She seduced the man. But that is not biblical. They just totally ignored the Bible. The Bible treats people as equal. Maybe they have different roles, but they have intrinsic worth and value because they're created in the image of God. Do you and I treat people as equal? I'm going to skip forward because, you know, I'll just preach for like an hour and a half and we'll never have time to worship. So I'm just going to skip that one. But I just, you know, think about how you treat people. Mercy treats people as equal. The fourth point. Mercy understands that the end goal is righteousness. 
You know, the story continues. Everyone fades away and only Jesus and the woman are left. And he gently stands up from the ground, Jesus does. And he looks at the woman and he says, where did everyone go? No one is left. Who is here to condemn you? She says, no one, sir. Then Jesus says, neither do I. Now, don't miss these words, okay? Neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. You see, Jesus isn't content with just saying, here's the mercy. Jesus understands that the end goal of mercy is righteousness. Mercy isn't just a get out of jail free card. Mercy is a fresh start to pursue righteousness. And sometimes we get so busy assessing sin and what's not that we forget the point. We say, you know, oh, uh, you know, we got to elect people and pass laws so that America can be a righteous country again. And so let's legislate morality. Let's fix our country and tell everyone how sinful they are. And we have rallies to talk about what an immoral country is. And we write songs about it and we put videos out there. And we, you know, say we're a terrible, terrible country. We condemn the sin. That's true, but we forget to have mercy and to have an eye on righteousness. We forget that the point of mercy is transformation. God had mercy on us that we might be transformed. And we have mercy on the world so that they may be transformed. All right, so um, my in-laws are thinking about buying a motorhome if they can sell their house. And if somebody, they're going to be one of these retiring couples at motorhomes around the country. And, uh, you know, so who knows how long they're going to stay with us. <laughs> that could be fun. Anyway, um, so... <laughs> we'll edit that from the uh, podcast comments today. <laughs> so they're going to do this, right? So I've been thinking about motorhomes. And, you know, you can see some really crazy motorhomes out there, you know? Like, it starts with a camper, and then you go, and then it kind of upgrades from there. And they had these motorhomes where you see the people, they, they park in the motor the, in the camping lot. The first thing they did get, do is set up the satellite dish, right? And they have all the conveniences of home with them. Now, I thought... That the point of traveling the country was to see new places and experience new things. But some of these people go to the campground. They never leave their motor home. They have all the modern conveniences of home. So they're just living in their home and wasting gas driving around the country. And they never see and experience new things. You know, when we go on a journey with Christ, mercy sets us free. But sometimes we just take all the old baggage with us. And we fail to let mercy transform us. Jesus says, go and leave your life of sin. Leave the old stuff behind. Mercy has given you a new life to experience new things, to set, be set free, to be transformed, not just as a religious person, but as a Christ follower that envelops our whole life. The Apostle Paul is a great example of this. Someone who was shown mercy. Someone whose religious life, through Jesus, transformed his whole life. Someone who was shown mercy and then, as a result, showed mercy to others. Today, uh, here in just a second, the ushers are going to come forward and Setson's going to pray for our offering. And, uh, and then we're going to worship. And we're going to spend about 10 minutes here in worship and just lifting up the name of Jesus Christ, our glorious Savior, who has shed mercy to us, who shed his blood and have mercy on us. And, and my prayer is that that as the worship team comes, that you use these next songs to allow that mercy to transform you as we worship.
So would you stay seated as Stetson comes and uh, prays for our morning offering?